Welcome to the Onside Podcast, a podcast on innovation-driven entrepreneurship. Join us on this journey as we amplify the power of disruptive ideas. A visionary entrepreneur, originally from the dynamic tech hub of Tel Aviv's Israel, Ohad has built more than 150 world-class products across various business sectors and technologies. He is a founder and CEO of Eris Software, which was successfully acquired in 2008, and the co-founder, chief product officer, and chief technical officer of Playtrex, a leading game development company. He's been a lecturer and a mentor at StarTau at Tel Aviv University Entrepreneurship Center and has advised hundreds of entrepreneurs in developing their vision, strategy, understanding their real potential, and product market fit. Now based in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Ohad is a global citizen with a global perspective on tech entrepreneurship, culture, and attitude. Ohad, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. I'm really glad that you were able to, to join us. I've just told our listeners a lot of really great things about you and some of your accomplishments. But I was wondering if you could kind of take us back a little bit and share a little bit about your, your journey and how you decided to try something new and move from Tel Aviv a hotbed of tech activity and R&D to Halifax, which is a little bit on the earlier stage of uh, ecosystem activation for technology startups. Yeah, well, you know, we ask ourselves only one question. What country could offer the brightest future for our children, like in 20, 30 years from now? And we realized that Canada was the best place on earth we can find for our children. And then we analyzed the different provinces and landed here in Halifax because Halifax, as we see it, have the perfect combination between nature, cost of living, and opportunities. Because if you consider the tech ecosystem status here, that's an opportunity from an entrepreneurial point of view. That's great, yeah. We think that Halifax is a, a really up-and-coming area uh, related to to tech innovation and startups, I think recently in the uh, the startup genome project put uh, Atlantic Canada sort of on the the activation stage. So we are seeing a lot of things kind of moving this way. And one of the things that's been interesting about this particular place in the world is the combination of easy places to be, nature, easy access to uh, resources. So I I think you're you've come to the right place, and I'm I'm happy that you've become part of our our ecosystem here. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your background and how you became an entrepreneur? Sure. So 15 years ago, I graduated. I had a bachelor in computer science and math. And then I became a software developer in a huge firm in Israel. And I wasn't happy. I was actually pretty frustrated. I realized that I'm such a tiny cog in this huge machine. And eventually they fired me. You know, I think they've made me the biggest favorite of all because eventually I was forced in a way to look for my own path instead of going in the same direction as everyone else. And so I tried to build one project and I failed and I tried to have uh, another um, product and failed also. And then I've done a couple of freelance projects. And throughout time, I realized that uh, I'm really good at analyzing the business and understanding the whole picture, but I didn't have any business experience yet. So I wanted to have a business just to, to you know, 
to know how a business works. And so I founded Every Software Innovation to build small websites. And then we grew with our clients. So I provided uh, medium websites, then big websites, then huge websites. And at a certain point, when the Ukrainian market came to play, I realized I had to pivot because I couldn't offer their prices and yet they were professional as we were. And so we pivoted the whole business to provide user interfaces and custom CRM made systems. And with user interfaces, we had huge projects that we needed to provide like the whole product strategy along with the user interface because, you know, the user interface is kind of a reflection of the business model. So with big tech firms, we were providing the whole user interface and then an army of developers were developing and implementing exactly the user interface that we designed and characterized. But startups had a different set of challenges. So they needed more. So when we provided user interfaces, we helped them craft a better business model. And by doing that for a long period of time, we became the one-stop shop to build the whole product for many different startups. Because eventually we provided the whole thing, like from the business model through the product strategy and the roadmap. And then eventually we designed, characterized, and uh, implemented these user interfaces and the product itself, except for the technology behind it. And at a certain point, I kind of realized I'm wasting my time because my clients were growing exponentially while I was growing linearly. So I thought like in 10 years of work, what is their potential and what is my potential? And I realized they needed something else, some other solution to leverage my time. In addition, we just finished a huge project at the time of a startup called FortiCloud, and we've done the whole thing except for the technology part. And I remember I realized at the time that these guys are gonna sell their company in a couple of years. And then it hit me, I need to change the whole business. I don't wanna be a service provider anymore because I realized that if I'm able to create world-class products, I should build a product company. And then I analyzed the different opportunities. Bear in mind that I had more than 150 projects experience altogether, so I could understand the cycles and the potential of every startup. And I concluded that only two sectors can offer amazing multipliers. So you can have 15 employees and create a $200 million company, if that's a global company, of course. And these two sectors are the infrastructure sector, like infrastructure cloud at the time, today infrastructure AI, infrastructure whatever, and the gaming industry. But the gaming industry had dramatically shorter cycles, so you would know in about three years of time if you're on the right track or not. And this is why on 2015, I co-founded Playtrex, which is a social casino gaming company. And with Playtrex, we've raised a million dollars to build Wild Poker, which is a kind of different poker game. It's a poker game way, where we added a different layer of strategy that you can play one of the characters and you can allegedly cheat the game because if you're playing the giraffe, for example, you can stretch your neck and pick someone's card. Or if you play the shark, you can smell the weakest hand because you're a shark. At Playtrex, I was the CPO and CTO, which means that I've managed the whole product team, as well as the development team, monetization team, and QA. And you know what, it's funny because usually in these kind of uh, companies, you get two different individuals. You got the more tech-savvy guy, which is the CTO, obviously, that talks about the infrastructure, talks about you know the scalability, that kind of talk. And the other guy, which is the more emotional intelligent guy, talks about the market, the opportunity, and the features, and how to characterize them. So the fact that I could conduct these two different 
kind of conversations, the tech conversation and the product conversation was very, very efficient to play tricks. We were three times more productive than others because the bottom line is that I didn't need to fight over resources with anyone. I just knew what needs to be done and I prioritized everything according to the highest business value to play tricks. So after two years of work, on 2017, we brought on board Floyd Mayweather, the boxer from Los Angeles, and it kind of changed the whole business. Floyd Mayweather was initially our presenter, but eventually he became a partner in the company. And a couple of months later, we got our first purchase offers. And then in late 2018, I got my permanent residency approved. And since I was trying to move to Canada for a couple of years already, I decided to pack everything and come here. And just to have a closure on the Playtrick story, the company was acquired by a Canadian company a couple of months ago. That's awesome. That's a, that's a really awesome story. Well, I think we're, we're pretty glad that you've uh, decided to make uh, Halifax your home. And I think we're we're all going to benefit from having you here and hearing your perspectives on things. You know, at Onside, we're, we're interested in fostering and building a community around innovation-driven entrepreneurship. And I'm, I'm kind of curious because you do have a, a global sort of perspective. Do, do you have an idea of how, how you would define innovation-driven entrepreneurship and how that's a little bit different from small, medium-sized uh, kind of enterprise? Innovation-driven entrepreneurship is first and foremost entrepreneurship which harness technology to provide business solutions and value. There's a misconception about innovation. Since innovation became a buzzword, many businesses are defining innovation as their goal. In fact, innovation is not what you do. Innovation is not why you do something. Innovation is how you do it. Entrepreneurship is the core of it, and it's about building a business, or if you will, building a value machine that generates more than one dollar for every dollar it consumes. And in that context, innovation is the way to implement the business solution or provide value or create more efficient inner processes in this value machine. So innovation-driven entrepreneurship is utilizing new ways to create more value, be more efficient, scale faster, and offer a more competitive opportunity. Regarding the size of the enterprise, it doesn't really matter because it is the same thing. Whoever provides more value will eventually grow, period. And innovation is one way of doing it. You, you've started companies from scratch, gone through exits, and in your own journey, you know, were there some things or, or moments um, where you faced barriers in creating your companies where, you, where something clicked for you? Was there something that happened as you were growing your businesses that made you have a new perspective on entrepreneurship? You know, the entrepreneurship journey requires you to change your perspective many, many times because you want to grow and every step you make presents you a challenge, but an opportunity as well. And the way you deal with these challenges requires a whole different perspective. Because, for example, selling $5,000 websites is totally different than selling $100,000 websites, which is totally different than selling $1 million user interfaces. And then again, it's totally different than having your own product company and then scaling the product as much as possible with the global market. And if you're stubborn enough, you'll change your perspective every time it is required until you've nailed something, until you've solved the problem, until you've grown your company, until you've sold the company. You do whatever it takes to get you wherever you want. So to your question, you always change perspective. You always learn something new about people, about businesses, about money, about everything that surrounds you. You always have a different perspective 
as long as you're growing and you're willing to pay the price that it takes to grow. Thank you for that. That's that's insightful. You know, we've said that things are at an earlier stage compared to to Tel Aviv, um, and you know, when when things are new, there there are opportunities. What what are some of the opportunities that that you're kind of seeing or that you've observed? What do you think those might be? Frankly, there are many different opportunities, and they're all somehow related to the global market. So the first type of opportunities, as I see it, is undervalued companies. You got very interesting startups with founders that want to sell their companies for eight, 10, maybe $15 million. And that's an opportunity because a major player that is willing to pay that amount of money for your company, he's confident enough that he can sell the same company for $100 million or more with the same activity, maybe with minor tweaks or changing the strategy or tweaking the product to, to match it to the global needs. That's one type of opportunities here. The second type of opportunities is that startups are struggling for the wrong reasons here in Atlantic Canada. And there are many different circumstances for that, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. In fact, it's much easier with the right mindset and the right terminology and the right ideas and the right tools to become globally competitive. So solving this gap between these startups, advanced stage startups, and the global market is a great opportunity. And the third type of opportunities is closing the gap from many different angles between the local tech ecosystem here and the global market. It includes all the aspects of circulating private investments through the ecosystem and create great multipliers with the right businesses, the right startups, the right leaders, and serving the global market with local talent. I believe that many things can be done here because I haven't met in any other place so many powerful key players with great intentions who are willing to invest their own time and money to help the tech ecosystem go in the right path. So addressing and solving the gap between the local tech ecosystem and other global tech ecosystems is the third opportunity, as I see it. Interesting, interesting. You, you raise a lot of really uh, interesting points kind of about our, our ecosystem that's here in Atlantic Canada and Nova Scotia and Halifax. You know, I think that this is something that we're trying to put our minds around, you know, what are the things we need to do to be thinking about to advance the ecosystem here? Because we know we're at a very early stage. We've got super smart people. There's so many universities in this region, uh, lots of people who have a lot of technical capability to to create uh, innovation-driven entrepreneur companies. Um, but one of the things that's uh, been a bit of a challenge is, you know, some of the um, the skills, the the risk taking, and some of those kinds of uh, perspectives. Do, do you think that entrepreneurs are are born, or do you think entrepreneurs are made? I believe entrepreneurs are totally made. It's just a matter of making the right decision every time and the willingness to pay the price. Because entrepreneurship is a set of incremental challenges that forces you out of your comfort zone every time and makes you decide how do you want to cope with your challenges. And the way you deal with your challenges is what will determine eventually if you'll be a successful entrepreneur or not. But it's a total decision you have to make every time to become a successful entrepreneur. So referring to your question, entrepreneurs are made by making tough decisions and surviving along the way. What would you say to somebody who says that they're not confident or they, they're not sure if they have the right kinds of skills or that they just, uh, they're not sure if they, that they could be an innovation-driven entrepreneur? I'm interested in tech, I'm interested in entrepreneurship, but I'm not sure if I have the right stuff. 
What would you tell people? What, what's the right stuff that they need to have? Well, I'm sorry to disappoint, but there's no right stuff here. Entrepreneurship is like everything else. If you decide you want to be a world-class professional in something, you have to work hard, you have to learn hard, you have to play hard, and eventually you get rewarded for that. So it's the same thing here. It's just a matter of decision. You're in total control of your life, and whatever you decide to do with it, it's your opportunity or your problem. And you know what? I think that it starts with what you feed your brain with. If someone is looking for a starting point, start with replacing passive terminology with active or proactive one. So for example, I teach my kids to replace I can't with that's hard for me. Because in that way, I teach them that there's nothing impossible. It's only a matter of how hard you work towards your goals. And if you want something that hard, so you just have to work harder because it's only hard for you right now with your skills and inexperience. We know that innovation-driven entrepreneurship leads to huge gains uh, in just improvement and quality of life, of new technologies, new ways of doing things, um, you know, more jobs, uh, all, of, all of those great, great things. Um, and creating the environment where these things can happen quicker and, and more readily is, I think, the, the thing that everybody is trying to, to figure out. Based on your experience of, of being here for a while, um, are there certain incentives or things that, that you think could be done to help uh, foster a, uh, a increase in this entrepreneurial uh, culture uh, and the rate of uh, increasing innovation-driven entrepreneurs? What's your impression of the state of innovation-driven entrepreneurship in Atlantic Canada? To ignite a positive development within the local ecosystem, there are some short, mid and long-term changes that will require courage and decisive bot actions with creative ideas to get actual results. I believe that there are six main challenges that need to be tackled head on. The first challenge is helping companies become more globally competitive. Because when you play in the global arena, you have to consider the fact that there are many other players that want to conquer the same market. So metaphorically speaking, is like competing in the Olympics versus competing in, you know, local competition. You can be a champion in Atlantic Canada, but if you want to compete in the Olympics, it's a totally different thing. You have to be dramatically more efficient. You have to be much more out of your comfort zone. You have to be hungry to conquer that size of market and improve your business as fast as possible. And obviously you should be aware of your global value because you might provide local value, but maybe the global market has better solutions. So that would be the first challenge. The second challenge would be to build future business leaders. Because you know, I've met here so many world-class professionals like developers, designers, and other world-class professionals, analysts, but I haven't met too many business leaders that can actually execute from A to Z. That can take an idea and put the right strategy with the right incentives, with the right team members, offering great deal of value to their investors with real competitive advantage in the global market. So that would be the second challenge, to build the future business leaders that can actually take a company, take an idea and make a company that worth nine figures or more. The third challenge would be to help the government improve its connection and its relationship with startups and put them on the right track. There are many different challenges related to that. And I think that the government plays a vital role in building these businesses 
And their strategy eventually is what dictates the path these startups are following, in a way. The fourth challenge is lack of information about healthy ecosystem. And it starts with the relationship between the different key players and ends up with the leadership and the knowledge about how money is circulated through the system. And part of it has something to do with the sixth challenge I'm about to talk in a few seconds. But the other part of this challenge is the fact that there are not too many failure examples or conversations that everybody can learn from. The more productive meetups and events in Israel are the ones that are talking about the failures. Because everybody can learn from your own failures and you can also improve your business by listening to other failure stories. So this is the thing. Sharing is caring. And as long as you share your failure stories, you help others to succeed because they can learn from your challenges and how you cope badly with that. But now they know how to deal with their challenges better. And it goes both ways. When they share their failure stories, it helps you progress more and build a better business. I encourage any investor, any leader, any founder, anyone in the ecosystem to share their failure stories so everyone can benefit from that. The fifth challenge is about the relationship between major players and advanced stage startups. You know, I've seen many examples of great startups that started the right way and eventually down the road they meet a major player that needs exactly that kind of solution. And it might go well, and it's very hard to refuse a $1 million contract, especially if you're a small startup, but sometimes these major players influence the roadmap in a bad way because they couldn't care less about your product market fit, and now you have to choose. Either you go with them and become a service provider, or you lose the contract to chase the global market potential. And unfortunately, too many startups chose to become service providers on the expense of their global potential. The sixth challenge that needs to be tackled head-on in order to improve the ecosystem is that we have to encourage healthy conversations about the implications of conservative society. To be clear, I don't think it contradicts having a conservative society along with a healthy tech ecosystem. But we have to find solutions to the challenges that conservative society creates in the context of startups, like risk-averse, fear of failure, slow adoption, and most importantly, have a direct feedback that can help you improve your business. We need to find workarounds that would work with our society and eventually would generate a healthy tech ecosystem. So these are the six challenges I think that needs to be solved in order to put Atlantic Canada on the global tech ecosystem map. That was that was uh, very helpful to have you kind of lay it out uh, the way that you see it. And I, and I know you've worked internationally and consulted uh, many different countries and with many different kinds of companies and places. Uh, is there is there another um, region or country that you think uh, would be an interesting model for for Nova Scotia to to look at or is there a place that kind of stands out for you uh maybe other than than Israel is there another place that you think oh you know uh Atlantic Canada Nova Scotia could could really uh learn a thing or two from this particular place is there any place that stands out I guess it's a question of what Nova Scotia aspires to become you see there are many different models successful ones all over the world you got the Irish model you got the Ukrainian model and the Israeli model. So with the Irish model, you got a struggling economy up until 95, around 95, when they began with the Celtic Tiger phase, as they call it. They've made everything to bring foreign direct investment to their country. 
and lowered the corporate tax to very low rates, and they had capital programs to better manage their economy with the new social partnership approach. And all of that together is what helped transform the Irish economy into what it is today. Because what happened from that point on is that foreign corporates relocated their headquarters to exploit the tax rates, the low tax rates, with the European market in their mind. And eventually, this is what made the Irish economy one of the wealthiest ones in Europe. Another successful model is the Ukrainian model. In 1996, the average monthly salary in Ukraine was $5 a month. And this year, the average monthly salary in Ukraine is $591. What happened is that in the last decade or so, they realized they have very bright individuals. And by exposing them to the global market and offering their professional services to international corporations, they can make more. So what happened in the last couple of years is that they became one of the largest nations that provides professional services in terms of technology, development, design, and so on. By exposing the local market to the global market, they not only learned how to become more competitive, but also they were able to multiply the average salary more than 100 times in about a decade or so. So I know you ask for different models except for Israel, but I gotta bring the Israeli model here because I think that if Nova Scotia aspires to become a meaningful global player in the tech ecosystem, that's a great example. So the Israeli model is all about creative ways to survive. And I'm not talking about the existential issue, I'm talking about survival in business and how you find new creative ways to make more with less. Because you see, Israel is a very competitive place and eventually it encourages you as an entrepreneur to find very creative ways to make more with less resources and become profitable. So for example, you might want to outsource your development work to someone like a Ukrainian company, but at the same time, you aspire to conquer the US market because this is one of the biggest markets out there. And because it's such a competitive place, you can't have a real business conversation without taking into account the global market. Whoever starts a meeting, an investment meeting, for example, in Israel, talking about the local market gets thrown out of the door because investors in Israel don't care about the local market. They do care about conquering the global market. You gotta have a big vision and a viable strategy to conquer the United States market. Otherwise, your product is worth nothing. But the main thing here is that the intellectual property stays within the country most of the time. So eventually with the Israeli model, you get some of the most creative business leaders out there that are hungry enough to make the efforts and pay the price that it takes to build global businesses and thrive. And when they finally exit their companies, they're willing to invest more money in the economy with fresh startups because they know that they have one of the most successful startup ecosystem out there and they can have amazing multipliers for their private investments. So back to your question, there are many different successful models out there and it's just a matter of what Nova Scotia aspires to become and how eventually Atlantic Canada will cope with its current and future challenges that there have been some folks uh, from here in the region who've gone to Tel Aviv and to Ashdod, uh, looking at uh, examples of the Living Lab and different uh, initiatives that are taking place there, as well as uh, looking at the tech incubators and accelerators that are, that are prominent all over, all over Israel. So I think that that, that point is, is well taken. Um, as we kind of uh, turn our attention a little bit to some of the the challenges that we're facing lately, um, you know, one of the things we're you know we're we're sort of in this situation now with the 
uh, COVID-19 and the global pandemic that is facing our, um, our, our, our world. And startups are, are also being impacted uh, by this pandemic as well. Do you have some some thoughts about you know what the the greatest impacts will be to to startups um, because of COVID nineteen? COVID nineteen is a major challenge, especially if you have to pivot your whole business to survive. I believe that in some kind of a twisted way, COVID nineteen had a positive impact on leadership and the organizational culture because it forces managers to become leaders because they can't manage their employees remotely with micromanagement tools. So they need to develop micromanagement tools and find ways to make their employees intrinsically committed to the goals and targets and the milestones ahead. And I think that's a positive impact on leadership and the organizational culture. From startup's point of view, I believe it's yet another challenge to deal with, although it's a major challenge, but yet just another challenge to deal with on your way to success. Hmm. Hmm. That's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I think what you're, what you're talking about, and I think everybody is sort of experiencing this at this moment is that uh, your back is in a corner and you have to start making some uh, critical decisions relatively quickly. If your organization, startup, et cetera, is going to survive and not just survive, but actually thrive. Um, so, uh, we have this expression, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff and, you know, this will, will certainly start to do that. But I do think you're right. There are likely some leadership opportunities and skill development opportunities that will help hopefully take companies to that, to that next, uh, to that next level. Are, are there other things that you're thinking about how, how companies, uh, and startups in our, in our region can prepare themselves or, uh, get themselves ready to to scale up. Are there things that you know we're in this sort of unique situation now, um, and uh, the leadership aspect is is going to be critical. But are there other things that companies should be thinking about as they uh, are in this moment and thinking about scaling up? Generally speaking, without considering the COVID nineteen situation for a second, I think that any company that wants to scale up needs to do that only when they have product market fit. And preferably, we're talking about the global market. So given you have product market fit, you should try to scale up as fast as possible, exploiting as many resources as possible, raising money as much as possible. Try to build automatic processes within your company. But for companies without product market fit, I think it might be traumatic to try to scale up and then realize there's something missing. It can be devastating to the company as well as very expensive. And actually, there's a great lecture that I always recommend of the CRO of HubSpot that is called a step-by-step -step guide to revenue growth. And it talks exactly about that. And in the context of COVID-19, I think that it's very important to stay as close as possible to the market because many market fits have changed lately and maybe the product or service value props became irrelevant. So I advise everyone to stay as close as possible to their markets and try to be sensitive to understand the trends that affected somehow the product and the product market fit and pivot accordingly. I think that's a very uh, important observation because uh, you're right. Things that the consumer be consumer's behavior is changing, the way we interact is is changing, um, and so being aware of that and thinking about that might be something that's really important for for companies to be thinking about right now. So I think we're getting close to our close to our time. I have a 
a couple of um, extra questions that I thought I would uh, uh, throw at you. Uh, you've been so kind in, in sharing with us, um, you know, your perspectives about some of the issues around culture and entrepreneurship and incentives that can make an, a, an impact uh, and shared with us also kind of the perspective of what's happening in Israel and the things that you see going there that could be good models for us to to take a look at. Um, and I have to be honest, I did sort of sleuth your, your LinkedIn profile because that's what people do nowadays. And I noticed that you had something on there uh, that says that you are an exceptional autodidact. And I'm not sure if a lot of people know what an autodidact is, but I thought it would be really interesting if you could tell you tell us what that is and why you think that's so important to entrepreneurship. Oh, that's an interesting question. Nobody asked me about it. So a autodidact is someone that can teach themselves new skills and absorb knowledge in a very efficient way. The same way I taught myself to play the piano and play many complex classic pieces, it's very handy in the entrepreneurship journey because you always have to learn something new. So yeah, I think that's very handy when you're an entrepreneur, but it also makes life more interesting. And you know what? It's not like I'm special or something. It's just... A decision, a mindset that you can learn everything and you can do everything. And it's exactly the same thing. You're in total control of your life. You can decide what's best for you. And if you decide you want to learn anything, you can do it and you can actually be successful. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, I, I was uh, telling somebody recently, if you don't know how to do something, there are these amazing tools that are out there. And one of the tools is YouTube. If you don't know how to do something, just look it up on YouTube. I, uh, I was telling one of my, uh, my colleagues that I learned how to use a snowblower. I had no idea how to use a snowblower, but I learned how to use a snowblower um, by watching a 15-year-old on YouTube demonstrate to me what I needed to do to get the snowblower working in a blizzard. So um, yeah, so I, I, I too think that that's an important skill. If you don't know something, um, you know, times have changed and there's a source of information out there. And if you have a little bit of curiosity, you that'll take you that'll take you a long way. So I appreciate that. Right. So before we wrap up, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening and especially to you, Alex, for bringing me here, sharing my ideas with you guys. As a straightforward person, I totally believe in directness. So if anyone wants to contact me, I encourage them to send me a message through LinkedIn or maybe uh, send me an email that is also published on LinkedIn. Or maybe say hi the next time you see me at Volta. Thank you. <laughs> that sounds great. That sounds great. Well, well, I've definitely seen you uh, around Volta, so uh, which is the uh, tech hub that we have here in uh, in Halifax. If you're listening in from another location, uh, Volta's right uh, right down here in Halifax. So you can find Ohad Ohad there or uh, on LinkedIn or, or other places. So at this point, I want to uh, thank our audience for listening. We know that there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts that are out there. Thanks for listening to ours and to learning a little bit about uh, Ohad and his perspectives about innovation-driven entrepreneurship here in our ecosystem, ways to face some of the challenges that are in front of us, and hear some perspectives about uh, ways to move forward. I would uh, love for you to subscribe to our podcast. Uh, and you can also take uh, a, a, a gander at our website, which is onsidenow.ca. 
So thanks so much for that. And I also want to send a, uh, a shout out to Sharon, who helped us organize this podcast today, and also uh, Podstarter, who uh, helped us put this uh, together. So thank you, everybody, so much. And thanks for listening. <laughs>